you guys hear this with every podcast, uh, like subscribe, all of that on YouTube and everything, but you guys, it really does mean something. So if you guys can take the time after you hear this episode or just pause it, do me a favor, go to iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now and rate us, leave us a comment. Everything helps with the algorithm. I feel that we're doing an important message here by talking to veterans and letting them share their stories. We're not talking to the most out there veterans, some of the big names who get their messages out fairly easy. We're talking to the average guy for the most part. And anything you can do to help us promote the show would help out a lot. So please take the time. If you like this show, rate us. If you hate this show, rate us, but leave us a comment. All of that helps with any of the algorithms, iTunes, Spotify, just to get our show promoted a little bit more. Thank you. On this episode of After the Battle Campfire, I talked to Rick Everett, an amazing artist and a reconnaissance Marine. I met him while I was recovering at Brook Army Medical Center, and he was part of 4th Recon Battalion. He shares his stories, and we get to go pretty deep on some stuff. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. Creepy disembodied voice. <laughs> All right, we're back again, and I'm here with my buddy, uh, former Marine, Rick Everett. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, first, I got to ask, how was your holidays in pandemic world? You know, uh, <laughs> my wife and I, we joke about this all the time. It hasn't changed much because this is our life. We're <laughs> pretty much homebodies, and we keep to ourselves. And, you know, so it was good. I mean, some things are different, I suppose. Can't go to Arizona, which is where my other family's at, but. Oh, damn. Yeah, that's about so, it. So let's start at the beginning for you. The beginning. Where born. did you grow up? <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, uh, started off in Phoenix, Arizona, South Phoenix, actually, um, right against the mountains. And uh, lived there until I was about eight. And then. Lived with my dad at eight years old. That's when I got to Texas. And then uh, that, I guess you could say I pretty much grew up in Texas. Okay. And, uh, that was Pflugerville. And then uh, shortly after high school, joined the Marines. And, you know. What year, did you, what year did you join the Marines? 2003. Okay. So you were a post 9-11 enlistee. I was, yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, waking up early in the morning to watch the footage on the news and, you know, just to get as much of it as I guess as I could. And that's really what kind of fueled my interest. And I was like, I just got to be a part of this. So when I, when I could, I stepped in and did the delayed entry program and, you know, pretty much two weeks after graduation, I was gone. So what was, uh, what was high school like during the, po the that two years before you left for, uh, for the Marines? Uh, let's see. That happened in 2001. I remember the exact moment it happened, 9-11. I was in an SAT prep class, and uh, first time I was late to class, actually. And I remember walking into class, and everybody was watching the screen. And it, it was typical in the morning. We would watch, like, 15 minutes of some show for the you know, this teacher's class that we were in. And then we'd begin the lessons. And so I just figured it was whatever show we were watching. And then I was like, oh, what is this? And then like, what movie is this, guys? And then everyone's looking at me like I'm crazy. And then that's when I realized it was real. From there, um, 
it's hard to remember a lot of what happened other than I know that the Iraq war and everything Afghanistan kicked off. And I remember the news coverage, watching the bombings of Baghdad and all that kind of stuff and on the uh, news feeds and, you know, trying to get as much of it, I guess, as I could. And then uh, I think a, a year later is when the Columbia, I think is when that blew up. Was it? Yeah. 2000. It's either 2004 or 2005, I think. It was because I remember the day after that is when I went to the recruiter's office. And oh, wow. so uh, that was, that had to have been 2002. 2003, maybe. I graduated. And yeah, that's yeah maybe. So um, prior to going, prior to 9 11, were you military oriented at all? Uh, I had always wanted to be a fighter pilot. You know, never knew anything about it, what it took to get there. But uh, did, did you watch what's that? Did you watch that documentary? Um, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Top Top Gun. That that was that the one that got you into wanting to be a fighter pilot. That great documentary. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wanted to participate in international foreign relations and communications and all that kind of stuff, and you know, go inverted and uh, quickly realized that you needed a degree to get that, and I didn't. I didn't want to wait. You know, so then. Uh, from there, I had no real big interests uh, until 9-11 happened. So um, when you went to go sign up and go to the recruiter, you you know we're in an active time of war. How, how did your family take that? Mom was supportive, very supportive. Dad was highly against it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I remember people telling me at the time, it's usually the opposite. Yeah. That's what I would have guessed. Dad wasn't in the military, but grandpa was both sides of the family, uh, long military history. So I don't know what his, I don't remember what his reservations were about it. Maybe he didn't, you know, like same thing as every other parent. They don't want to see their kid go off and, you know, make that ultimate sacrifice. But mom was really, again, really for it because she knew I needed structure and she knew that I needed direction. And I had none at the time until I uh, signed the paperwork to, to do the delayed entry program. So was it, I don't know if you remember when we were at the unit, um, sometimes they would bring pulleys in and us corpsmen would have to go, you know, give the recruiters some support. Did you guys have that same structure? Like, did you have a pulley? We did pulley thing? functions. And uh, I remember doing PT, you know, uh, at some track field in high school with the recruiters and the other pulleys. And I remember doing two, two pull-ups. And that was my max at the time. <laughs> I was a buck 55. I couldn't run for shit. I couldn't do pull-ups. And I was like, how am I going to do this? And then, you know, I got in and it slowly started going up from there, you know, and how they do it in boot camp, they tailor you, break you down, they build you back up, you know, all that kind of stuff. So did you, were you an athlete at all in high school? I was a football player beginning of high school. Then I stopped playing football because it stopped being fun. Then I went into baseball and tennis. Okay. Tennis. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, do not, 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 not a usual strike me as a Marines come from, but <laughs> no. it was uh, a lot of running. It was a lot of running. I remember that. And, 
yeah, it was a great sport. It was, it was a lot of fun. Do you, do you still do it? I wish I could, but I don't, I don't know why I don't, I never got back into it. That's, it's funny during this whole pandemic, it's like the one sport that I've heard people encouraged to go do because you keep your distance. Yeah, absolutely. But so anyway, so you uh, finally ship out. Did you go West or East Coast for bootcamp? Into West Coast. Still find it hilarious that the smallest branch of service has two boot camps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So had you, you said you grew up in Arizona, lived here most in Texas most of your life. Yeah. Was it new to you to go to California? Um, Excuse me. Um, I had been there a few times. My grandfather on my father's side lived in Sacramento. Okay. I knew what Northern California was like. Um, San Diego, I'd been to once or twice. But yeah, I suppose it was kind of new. Were you? Remember, an, oh, go go ahead. Ahead. No, go ahead. Finish. I, I just remember uh, leaving and getting on the plane and realizing just this is it. You know, this is the start of my adult life, you know, and I remember how terrified I was, how nervous I was, uh, taking comfort with a small group of guys that were with my, uh, my group that were shipping off and, you know, and then, uh, yeah, and just everything after that, it was all just fast. You didn't have enough time to rethink anything. Yeah. So, so um, I should have asked this before. Did you go in under, um, under a contract or did you go kind of open contract? I did. I went under the recon contract. How did you find out? I mean, out of all of the special operations communities, I think the recon even today is still pretty unknown. I went into the recruiter's office there in uh, Austin and I said, what's the hardest thing you have? What, what is equivalent to, you know, your special operations and, he said, Oh, that's, that's recon. That's, that's reconnaissance. And then I learned about it and I said, well, that's what I want to do. He said, well, you got to test for it. So went and did the, uh, the, and the MEPS test and got a GT score that was high enough to qualify for that job. And so I was under a contract to do that. And, uh, you know, as long as I completed the pipeline and I got the MOS, then, you know, I could complete that contract. Otherwise they just reclass you to an infantryman. Oh, okay. Okay. So you get to boot camp. The typical, everyone loses their shit, uh, yeah. step on the yellow footprints things. Yeah. What was, what was boot camp like for you? Um, I remember it was very fast, very fast. It was shocking. Um, a lot of, a lot of guys describe a culture shock because they come from all walks of life, you know, or they've stayed in one place for their entire life. And, that wasn't me because I had lived in Phoenix and Texas and been all over a little bit, but um, it was, I just, I, I just remember trying to do my best not to get yelled at, not to be the attention, to be the gray man as much as I could, you know, and just do what they told me to and seem to work out. So while you were there, um, I don't know anything, honestly, I don't know anything about PI, Paris Island, but I know at some point in time, you guys go up to Camp Pendleton for uh, field exercises and range range days. And I think you guys had the crucible already at that point in time. We, um, well, you're in San Diego at the uh, recruit depot for phase one, phase two. No, 
man, it's been so long. Yeah. Phase one, phase two, phase three, I think is when they finally do the field stuff or phase two is field vice versa. Anyway, you go to camp Pendleton for the field stuff and the crucible. And that's, you know, four weeks of that. And yeah. So you, yeah, you do the crucible. I think it was back in the old days. It was the very last thing, but 2003, it wasn't the last thing, you know, after that you had pool stuff and then you had graduation, two weeks of prep for graduation. And I think final drill or something. And then, you know, uh, after the crucible, I really don't remember a whole lot of it, to be honest. Damn. So the weird thing about San Diego for boot camp is you guys are literally right next to the airport. Yes. Yeah. It is. Then you go, what, 50 miles north up to Camp Pendleton, that's where you do all your field training. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember your gas chamber? I ask everyone this. I'm always fascinated by people. Yeah, by people's reaction to their first time in the chamber. I think so. Um, I don't know. We did it a few times at Camp Bullis as well. So. Yeah. You know, I, I honestly, it's hard to remember, but no, uh, no worries, man. Cause I, I know that so yeah. many people, I mean, me with my background with the CBs being the nuclear biological chemical corpsman, I got gassed a lot. And with your recon background, I know you guys sucked up gas. Like it was cool too. Yeah. Yeah. Even uh, just some of it out myself. So we'll get to that later. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> that being said, so you graduated what August, September of two thousand three. The boot camp, yeah, it was uh, yeah. went in June, so yeah, I think it was August or September. Yeah, that's that's about right. So then, did you did you take leave and come back to Texas, or did you just go straight up to SOI? I took the ten day leave, I think is what it is, and went back to Texas. <laughs> You know, did the uh, motivated Marine, young Marine thing and dressed up in my blues, visited dad at work, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, then went back to Camp Pendleton for the School of Infantry. And did your dad's um, reluctance change at all once he saw you back yeah. in uniform? He came to my graduation at, at uh, San Diego and he was extremely proud. And, you know, I think he had accepted it at that point. And then, uh, yeah. You know, so he was everything from there on out was my son, the Marine, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So, so you yeah. go, you do school of infantry, which for people who don't know, all Marines in the, the, the adage, all Marines are riflemen, infantry in that, that world, what they call the O3 world go to the school of infantry. Yeah. And then everyone else goes to, what is it? MCT or MCT, something. Yeah. Marine combat training. But so where they basically, that's all they do for that period of time. Once you got done with the SOI, did you go to directly to um, BRC, Basic Reconnaissance no. Course? From there, I came back to uh, MART, Marines Awaiting Recon Training, which ah. is the reserves version of RIP, Recon Indoctrination Platoon. Um, from there, I spent Thanksgiving 2003 until April 2004. Okay. Yeah. So... You know our mutual. Well, uh, I'm positive you know uh, Joe Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got these stories about Joe. I hunt with him all the time. Oh yeah. In fact, that that bison that you saw on my Facebook. Yeah. We did that together last week or That's- two weeks ago. So, without picking on Joe, what was uh, Mart like? 
<laughs> it's funny you referenced Joe because uh, Mart was you were I, I remember the first thing the first week I was there it was a gut check that's when I first met Ken Sharp okay Ken, so Ken Sharp in uh, welcomed me with pain into uh, Mart which uh, yeah it was it was great so um did a lot of pool stuff, did the screener. And then I was probably in Mart for, I don't know, a month or two, just slowly getting my PT scores up when collectively everybody got together and said, Hey, Gonzo's coming back. And then they were like, I said, who's Gonzo? And they said, you're not going to like him. You're going <laughs> to Gonzo came back the following week and it was PT level just went up, you know, endurance training just went up. Everything just was a step up. It was like he had to prove that, you know, he was bringing back something hardcore. And honestly, it was great. It was great because it got a lot of us ready. 15 or 17 of us were ready by April with Gonzo coming back uh, Ron Atkins getting introduced and also working with us, Sharp working with us. And with those three main instructors, they got 17 of us ready to go to recon school by April, 2004. Yeah. So as you were a reservist, right? Yes. So during your Mark, Mark, I can't even say that word, the Marines awaiting reconnaissance training, you were still on active duty, right? We were in student status on active borders. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they held you till you were ready to go and finish right. off the schools. That's correct. So besides Joe beating you, um, I know <laughs> much like many of um, the naval side special operations, people, SEALs, you guys come in, your PT studs, by the time you get to BRC or to BUDS, you guys have all of this uh, great pull-ups, great runs, push-ups all day, flutter kicks, whatever. But what always bites people in the ass is the water training. Water. Did you guys get a lot of swim training? Prior to BRC, I want to say we were in the pool three times a week. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, we were fish. I was already a fish. That was one of my strong points going to the military. I loved swimming all the time, but... I didn't know how terrible swimming could be until you got into that training field. And then it was swimming with clothes on and that was a completely different experience for me. And then yeah. I adapted, got better at it. And yeah, I mean, I love swimming. It was, that, that's definitely the great equalizer. Yeah. I mean, and it seems, yeah, all the psych stuff that they do obviously messes with you, but when it comes down to it, if you're, can't swim you're not gonna or feel comfortable in the water you're not gonna survive in your career path yeah yeah so sure. you get over to then you fly back to cal did you go to california for brc i, back uh, no, I, went, to, I went to ars which was on uh east coast okay. which i am still uh i don't know if you know shep reimer he was on a few podcasts ago he's a sorry no i don't he, we were talking and he was trying to explain it to me that at that point in time, before they had the unified BRC at Pendleton, right. what was the difference between ARS and BRC? Um, having never gone to BRC, I don't know exactly what, 
logistically what was different about it? I know the material was the same. Oh, okay, it was. There were the same phases, I believe, were all the same. Um, there just needed to be two, I guess, two courses. And, you know, you got all the East Coast backwoods guys from Carolinas and things like that, and they needed a place to go, you know, for all the second recon. They got first recon over on the West Coast. They needed a place to go. Yeah, you know, that makes and sense. Finally, we got that one school consolidation. But yeah, I you know, and we always say if you're an ARS grad, you went to the harder school. <laughs> well, I'm I know that with the recon community, one of the big one of the big troubles that a lot of people have is land nav. Yes. And I being a corpsman who went to field med in Pendleton, land nav was pretty easy. It's pretty desolate out there. You can terrain like yeah. crazy. Yeah, you look at a map and you see a big mountain. And you're like, oh, there. Yeah. I hear on your guys' side, on the, on the East Coast, it's nothing but forests. So you really it have nothing to. Dense forests and swamps. Yeah, it was uh, it was difficult because I mean you it, it was you couldn't see anything you know off in the horizon too far. Um, I just remember, yeah, it was like you would hit a finger, you know, on a small hill. And you'd be like, I think this is where I'm at. Pretty sure this is where I'm at. You know, and then you kind of do a little bit of the stuff they teach you. And you, I was honestly, I feel like I got lucky, but I'm sure some of it was skill. Um, but yeah, land nav sucked. That was, that was hard. So how long, um, how long back then was uh, ARS? Three months, about 13 weeks. Yeah. So in your opinion, was it, um, I guess it would be two different worlds, but was it more difficult than going through boot camp for you psychologically? Um, it was more psychologically stressful, definitely, because I feel like in boot camp they kind of push you through. You know, they make you realize. It is, I'm not going to say you can't drop. I'm not going to say you that you can't get pushed out of boot camp or you can't fail Marine boot camp, but it's pretty dang hard. Um, they'll just recycle you, you know, and then you'll pick up another class, but in recon school, it's a voluntary MOS. You got a lot riding on it. You know, it's not just the physical portion, which should be taken care of by the time you get there. It's all the psychological academics. The Really it's all about how much can you take and can you keep pushing? You know, and, uh, Major Medlin was the OIC of the school. He told us one time, I don't want the fastest. I don't want the strongest. Okay. We don't want the smartest. We want people with hard backs and strong feet. Makes sense. So um, talking to Shep, he uh, went through RIP as a corpsman. Um, <laughs> and he said that basically you earned your seats as you went through the pipeline. Was it the same with Mark? Or were you guys, did you guys already know April you were going to, that's when you were going to go to ARS? Explain, what do you mean by uh, earning your seats? Like, you, uh, I don't want to say it was a game to the guys who were doing the billeting, but it was, okay, who's the best corpsman out of this group? Oh, okay. Who's performing the best? Who's doing this? And, okay, you're ready to go. Versus I know on June 19th, I'm going to be leaving for BRC or ARS. Um, I'd say active duty guys probably had a little bit more tough, a little more competition. I'm what they call baby recon, which means I was contract. So um, I was guaranteed a spot 
if I could pick up with a class. If you didn't have above a 250 PFT score with a completion of the recon screening by a certain time frame, then you got put on a notice essentially, and you either were going to get reclassed to an infantry guy out of Austin, or you were going to give be given a certain amount of time to try to increase and pick up your scores. And then, uh, you know, it was pretty much up to the instructors at that point. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes, that makes sense. So and I had, mean, like there was a cutoff point. You had to make it up to here and then, Hey, cause reserve guys, they push them out as soon as they can, you know? Oh, okay. Okay. So I, one thing I always appreciate, cause I, you know, I helped train with, uh, Joe when I first came to the unit, okay. they, they grabbed me and like became the little Mark Gorman that the Marines have been doing ripping this stuff forever. And yeah. it just seems awkward that, and they probably have a higher success threshold for ARS and BRC. Like the key, the people they send there, they know have a very high potential of graduating. Um, so I just find it weird that none of the other communities were doing anything like this prior to when all that happened. That sound more, that sound better in my head than it came out. <laughs> and which other communities? Uh, the SEALs, the SF guys. The Green Berets. I'm sure yeah. that they had something. Um, no, the, the SEALs, you would graduate boot camp, go to your A school, really? and then after your A school, if you had orders to BUDS, you'd go straight to BUDS. Hmm. So no now, problem. yeah, it wasn't until 2000, I think, eight or nine that they actually did. You contract in as a SEAL, you go to a three month basically rip, and then hmm. you, once you're good enough on all your scores, then you go over to BUDS. So they kind of adopted that way after you guys did, which was interesting to say the least. So going to ARS and completing that school, what happened after that? It was fast. Uh, Ken Sharp was in charge of putting guys through schools. And I remember coming back from there and it was like, you know, that group of Marines that graduated together, you know, we were really tight knit and it was like, all right, you're going to jump school, you're going to dive school. And they were just like, as soon they're capitalizing on the ability that guys were in their top physical position, you know, uh, physical fitness, they were mentally up there. They were on that, keeping with that forward momentum. They were just schooling people out, just pushing people here and there to sear, you know, uh, airborne dive, whatever they could. And then that was pretty much fast and furious. And I also think that we were ramping up for our deployment soon. So they want to get that done as soon as possible. So for people who don't know, um, the recon pipeline, you go to boot camp, BRC, then you go to jump, dive, and Sear. Sear. Mm-hmm. And so you're a, you're an 0321 after you graduate BRC, right? You do get that yeah. MOS? Correct. But to be a completely schooled up recon marine, you'd go through all of those. So where did you go to after um, ARS? As soon as the ARS is over, I uh, went to uh, went to I'm trying to remember. Went, okay, went to Airborne, Fort so, Benning, Georgia. Yeah. How was becoming a lawn dart? Um, you know, it was, it was an easy school. It was only three weeks. Um, 
I, to this day, jumping out of a plane is not something I ever want to do again. It's not a comfortable feeling. How many ever. jumps did you have when you got out? Um, you know, I, it's funny you asked me this because I was just looking at uh, some paper and I saw my jump log and I didn't even go through it. I mean, did you get over like 50? You know, I don't, I don't think I had more than 50, to be honest. I didn't jump all that often. I jumped to keep up my quals to make sure I got paid for it. <laughs> and that was it. Um, you leave, you leave jump school with your, what is it? 10 jumps or five, five jumps. And then you go back to the unit. Then you got to do your five various jumps to get your gold wings, got my gold wings. And then I was like, I don't want to jump ever again if I don't have to. <laughs> so you had no interest in going to, uh, damn it. Free fall. I forgot what I had, the I had Marine all was. the interest. I, I tried so hard to get to free fall and, but it just wasn't in the cards cause it wasn't a necessity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I heard free fall was tons better than being a dope on a rope. As someone who went through AFF with a uh, Nate Smith. Yeah. Uh, um, on the civilian side who was our paraloft chief. He, Great guy. yeah, he opened that role. That was amazing. The, the free fall is rad. The yeah. static line, uh, I've watched dangerous. too many of you guys bounce. It's dangerous. You know, it's, yeah. uh, I hit the, my last jump, actually, I hit the side of the plane coming out on, uh, at the schoolhouse. Yeah. So girl in front of me, you know, uh, army cadet or recruit or whatever she was, um, hesitated I was already lined up to push myself out the door. And when she hesitated and stopped, the jump masters, I guess their SOP is to shove them out the door themselves to make sure that everyone else can keep going. There's no foul ups. I was already behind her at this point. So we both went out together. I remember oh. hitting the side of the plane, opening my eyes to see my, my, uh, what's that? The line that comes out of your bag. Oh, the static yeah. line. Yeah, the static line, there you go. Static line was in between my legs and the plane was going away from me. So I was upside down on my back looking at the plane. And you know that opening's coming. You know, I didn't know at the time because there's so much going on. And then the opening came, it pulled my chute out and it just flipped me backwards. I had a stiff neck for probably two months after that. Oh, damn. I went to dive school with a, a stiff neck. I couldn't look to my left or my right. You know, so I had to take muscle relaxers and all this kind of stuff. So yeah. was, that the, was that the next school that you ended up going to after Airborne? Immediately went to dive school. Um, a, I got back from jump school. A week later, went to dive school. So yeah. I know that the, again, going back to what I said earlier about swimming, that uh, there's an aspect that I don't think a lot of civilians realize about uh, military diving schools. And you really see it in some of the documentaries uh, from the SEALs. But talk to me about uh, drown proofing. Um, SF drown proofing, I think that's what they called it. Um, it's, it's part of the prerequisite to get into dive school now to do the SF screener. Um, basically, you know, you have to complete a series of exercises with like your feet bound, your hands bound. You got to bob up and down in the uh, water for a certain amount of times, um, do forwards, roll, backwards, roll, and then take off at a swim. You know, it was all kinds of 
crazy prerequisites. However, guys are going to hate me for this. I didn't have to do that in 2004 because that wasn't a requirement. I was actually, I didn't know that that was, but I was actually thinking more of the, um, where they beat you up underwater and steal your gear. Okay. Uh, shark attacks. That's what we call those. Okay. That was the end of the scuba phase, I believe. And the, you're going around these racetracks around the bottom of this pool and you're with a partner. They come down, instructor comes down, they tap you for just a split second. And then you have no time to react. All you can do is just grab onto a strap and hold on and, don't clench your teeth because they're going to rip your, your regulator right out of your mouth. They're going to foul up your system, pull your fins off, pull your mask off. And it's just crazy, you know, flip you around, do all kinds of fun stuff. And that was a blast. I loved it. Cause okay. And, Not yeah. I, I actually, I really liked it because you got to sit there and then you would problem solve, you know, underwater. And those lines are, are, are built so that you never run out of air. You know, if you were going and taking a breath, and it doesn't come and no oxygen comes and no gas comes, then it's only because your tanks turn off. You know, otherwise those things are designed to not actually kink up or foul up. So I think that's the, uh, the number one reason why people freak out is they realize they don't have air and they automatically want to shoot to the surface. And their whole thing about shark attacks is teaching you how to solve your problems there instead of do the number one instinct, which is find air. Right. Which would, be a big problem if you were doing a dive mission and you Correct. surfaced. Yeah. Give yourself so, an AGE or something. So we talked about land nav earlier and how difficult it was where you got, where you went to ARS. Mm-hmm. I know that there are some, for lack of a better word, land nav aspects to, to the dive school that yeah, are requirements. Correct. How was, how was learning all that stuff? Um, it was a lot of math. It was difficult because you know, you got to learn longitude, latitude type stuff. Because now you're doing aquatic navigation, which is a lot different than, you know, land navigation. And a lot of it was um, whenever you fin, whenever someone's, whenever you're doing land nav, you got to do a pace count, correct? So you get your pace count so you can find out just how far one uh, kilometer is. You know, how many steps it takes for you to complete one kilometer. It's not that much different than when you're finning by a certain amount of kicks in a certain amount of time, you should have stretched a certain distance based on what you've practiced, what you've done, knowledge, experience, and if you're going with the tides correctly. So it's a little bit, of, it's a little bit of math. It's a lot of checking and guessing, I want to say. And for aquatic navigation, we were allowed to, you went subsurface, you were allowed to have one peak, one tactical peak per leg of the movement. So you would go subsurface, you would move until you were thought you were past a certain buoy, and then you're allowed to come up. And then if you were past the buoy, then you could start towards your target destination. If you weren't past it, well, then you have to calculate how much distance you're going to travel under the water to get past that, that threshold, that mark before eventually you're going to have to turn and then head towards your target. So that's the difficult part of it. Damn. And I know from, again, talking with Shep that you guys had some pretty damn long uh, dives in terms of distance you covered. Yeah. I'd say they're pretty, they were pretty far. 
2,000 meters, 4,000, I think, on one stretch. Yeah. Just as someone who lap swims, that's a pretty pretty decent amount of distance. Mm-hmm. So you guys finished that. So you, you're now schooled up. Oh, wait, you went to, you had to go to Sear. Yeah. So which coast did you go to Sear on? Uh, East coast up in uh, Brunswick. Or what time of the year? Maine. What's that? What time, what time of the year did you do that? November. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Cold weather survival. <laughs> that was great. So, and knowing that we, you probably had a better chance of going to Iraq than you did to uh, Afghanistan at that point in time. <laughs> Yeah, at that point, I knew I was going. Um, okay. Yeah, they had uh, actually briefed us in between one of our courses that we were getting ready to go. And so I went to SEER school with the knowledge that I was going to deploy, I think, within four or five months. Okay. So, so we were going to start work up within four to five months. Oh, no. okay. So you've basically joined active duty without intentionally be joining active duty. That's exactly what happened. I wasn't a reservist until 2006. So you get to uh, go to here. Go to here. Um, in the jump portion of your training and in Seer, it's not special forces oriented. It's kind of all services. Uh, Seer, it could be anyone from a pilot to crew. Yeah. Anybody that's so, into the career field of. Uh, flight crews or their pilots or in fact in that class was the brand new osprey crew they were going to be going into the ospreys the new version of the ospreys and uh, they were all getting seared up so what was uh what was sear like for you well it's all code of conduct training so you learn all the code of conic stuff, but it was focused on wartime resistance. Yeah. So you got your academics, which is a couple of weeks, and then you go into the field portion, which is, uh, for us, it was a combination of field survival along with cold weather survival. So we got a certificate for that as well. And then you go into the resistance portion and, like going to any more detail, I'll probably be breaking classified. No, 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 no. I just meant with the experience for yourself. Like how, how did you deal with it? Well, it's, um, I don't remember it. Honestly, I remember asked little, little chunks of it. I remember Rudyard Kipling's boots on the speaker in my cell. I remember what the cell looked like. I remember the setting. It was snowy. It was a lot of forest, a lot of birch. Um, so you got the full cold experience. We did. Yeah. We got the bunny boots and the parkas and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Did you, I know. Um, Remember hallucinating? Some, that, that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, I know that from what people have said publicly, so this isn't part of the classified thing. When you start your field exercise, mm-hmm. you're typically paired up. Were you paired up with someone that was a... Uh, say more special forces oriented versus flight crew? Not at all. We were in a team of, I think four or five, actually it wasn't pairs and we had to go from point to point to point. You could get caught before you hit your final destination, but everybody was going to go through resistance regardless. 
Right. So we made it all the way to a camp where they gave us chicken noodle soup. I'll never forget that. And then they, they catch you. But yeah, no, I did not have um, anybody that was real, had a lot of tactical sense. I had a, a guy that uh, flew a desk before he was lap moving into flight crew. He was an E6. He was in the Navy and he was an asshole. He was a jerk. And he thought he knew everything. And I was the only guy who had any kind of land nav experience. I just remember him second guessing all my points and my routes and everything that I was doing. Cause I was the point man for this little team that we had. And, uh, this, the seal that was our tat, our instructor that was kind of walking along with us for the first day. Uh, he recognized that there was some issues, some tension there. So he had, you know, helped us deal with that and, you know, telling this guy, Hey, this is what he does for a living. Let him do his job. So you don't get caught, you know, cause he's doing everything right. I remember one point in time, I got so frustrated with this E6. I don't, I don't even remember. I remember what he looked like. I don't remember what his name was. And uh, our instructor, we stopped for a break. He pulled me off to the side and he gave me back my uh, two cans of Copenhagen that they take from you in the beginning of the field portion. And he was just like, hey, look like you need this. You know, go yeah. ahead and have two and sit down. Let's talk. So we, we hung out. I remember that. And then once I calmed down and stuff, went back to my team, got back together with them, went over the route, the plan, and then, uh, you know, went and did our objectives and our points and stuff, and then made it all the way to where we were supposed to go. And then we got caught. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've always been curious about that part of Sierra School, how, um, how they integrate special operations guys with non-special operations guys and that there isn't a lot more issues that happen i'm sure there are um it didn't seem to be too terrible on our aspect i remember when it came time to build a shelter i do remember that he was one of the guys that didn't want to help so i'm an e3 he's an e6 i'm not going to tell him what to do so i just tried to do as much as i could lead by example i guess and paid attention to how they taught us how to build shelters built the shelter with my team and then we bed down for the night. And, were yeah. you um, were you an outdoorsy kid? Um, outdoorsy in the way of hill country, Texas. Yes. <laughs> so I mean, hiking, hunting, all that. Did some so, hunting, kid. A lot of fishing. There was a lot more fishing, actually. Yeah. So was uh, was so the outdoors wasn't foreign to you? Yeah, no, not at all. Maybe, maybe the, the cold weather. Was foreign, though. Yeah. That was different for me. So you get back to the unit and you are now schooled out. You've done everything. You know you got a deployment coming up. Yep. What was that conversation like with your family? I don't remember, honestly. I think they knew it was coming because it was all over the news and it was only escalating from where from where we began. Um I don't remember the conversation, to be honest. What, and this was what, 2000? That would have been 2005. Yeah. So you guys get the, the go order. Um, were you on BAGS deployment? No, I was not. I was on uh, Gill and Kenshin's deployment. Okay. So you were the previous one. Mm -hmm. So you guys get mobilized. Did you 
was it four three con that got mobilized or was it um or were you guys augmented out to somebody else? We, we were augmenting third. Okay. So we got stuck with third recon and we were third recon echo company. They were third recon alpha company. So we had so many reservists that we had our own company and we pretty much worked independent of the active duty guys. So what was your, um, what was it for you to get called up? What what was like your workups like? The workup? Yeah. Did you guys go straight to Cal- to Okinawa or did you guys go to California and do your own we stuff? To, we did. We started off in Bullis. We did all of our own stuff. A lot of range time, a lot of uh, skills, mount, um, vehicle mounted patrolling. And then from there, we went to California, Mojave, Mojave Viper is what we called it. That was our, like you're in the Moha- uh, Twin Nine Palms. Yeah, yeah, that, that, we did that too. Yeah. Um, so from there, you guys meet up and you do your, you finish up Mojave Viper, which was typically the end of your workups, at least for us, that's how it was. Yeah, it was. And then uh, block leave, if it was offered, did you yeah. come back? I think we had like a week or two of leave before we actually took off. So then, um, did you, do you remember anything that you did? Was there anything that maybe, I don't know, uh, the goodbyes, were they hard or were you pretty confident? Actually I do. Um, I got baptized. Oh, wow. Yeah. I got baptized at, uh, my mother's church. That was a request that she had. So I do remember that. So you, um, after that, you guys, I, I'm assuming meet back up at the reserve center down here mm-hmm. and then you're on a plane, go hop on a plane and yep. Yeah, and you're, you're pretty much flying from there to, uh, I want to say it was Lejeune from Lejeune area or I think it was Cherry Point actually. Shoot, man. I don't remember. Um, I, I I think you go up to Bangor, Maine, then cross over. That's it. I, I think, yeah, to every, I think everyone gets that one last stop in Ireland to have a beer or whatever it may be. Oh, oh no, no, we did. You're right. You're right. We did. We had a stop, but we couldn't get off the plane. Oh, damn. That yeah. sucks. It was also like zero dark stupid. So there was oh, no okay. there in the middle of the night. So we went from there to Germany and then from Germany to... I think it was Kuwait, something like that. Yeah. So where did you guys end up? What what part of, because I'm assuming you guys went to the Fallujah, Ramadi Camp area. Fallujah. Yeah, Camp Fallujah, the Mech, as they called it. Um, yeah, that's where we were pretty much living out of, was those cans, those little Kwanzaa huts, or whatever they call them. Yeah. Shipping yeah. containers. Yeah. 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 So... Being what at this point in time, 2021? 20, I was 19. Oh, damn, I got my mouth way off. Yeah, so, I, was, uh, I was super pipelined. And then I remember I turned 20 in Iraq. Yeah. So you uh, get there at 19 years old, feet yeah. on the ground in a foreign country carrying a rifle. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, I remember the very first time that the first thing that hit me was the smell 
you know, you know, and they say that your smell is the strongest sense tied to memory. And I just remember it was a lot of like burnt smelling, uh, foul, t- burning tires, garbage type smell. And then you got the, uh, it's just, it's got a unique smell. You know, the Middle East, it's got goat's yeah, milk yeah. Or, or, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, old milk and old food mixed with desert and burning garbage. That's what, that's what I could remember about it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, it's funny. One of my little triggers is when I'm driving down either towards a corpus, sometimes you'll get the guys burning yes. uh, trash out on their ranches. I know, exactly smell. I know exactly what you're talking about. Cause I do it. Yeah. It's happened to me a couple of times going down to Port A. Yeah. So you're there, you're like I said, 19, you're, are you ready to go? Are, do you have any hesitation at this point in time? No, people ask me, I remember saying, what's it like, you know, knowing that you're about to deploy and possibly die. And I just remember thinking one, one of my friends said it the best, you know, getting deployed as a Marine was like training for a basketball game your entire life. And then finally getting to play, you know, and maybe that's the indoctrination part of it or just how much they psychologically build you up. Cause they really do make you feel like you're, invulnerable to a point and then the first thing happens and then you kind of get that pucker factor and kind of wakes you up a little bit so did you guys do a left seat right seat with your replacements or were you guys just tasked and off no we did a uh uh replacement with i think it was second second or first uh because i remember talking to the guy who had a i don't know I don't even know if we can talk about this. Had a knife kill. Um, I think it was the first bayonet kill of the deployment was with either second or first. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was a direct action thing. And, but we were talking to those guys and we did our uh, turnover with them. Uh, we actually relieved Pepion's group um, and Koontz and couple other guys that were reservists before me they were there before us and they had participated in the whole Fallujah thing and okay uh, yeah because I think I know some of those guys that came back when I got there who were on med hold for for that period of time if, it, if it's who I think it is um so at that point in time was Fort just becoming like spare companies for the active duty battalions probably because I, I, I know I know they deployed as like a as a unit for the invasion. We did, yeah. So, all right. So, you're you're in country. You do your left seat, right seat. What was what was uh, leaving the wire like for you first, on your first? I remember the first the first moment, middle of the night. We go up to the checkpoint. You know, we do our thing with the guard. Let them know we're about to head out. Call it in. And my gunner went, I mean, not 20 meters past the front. My gunner has a negligent discharge. Oops. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was like that one thing that popped all our cherry. You know, it was just, you know, you got, it, it was, it was, it's going to sound weird, but it probably needed to happen. Yeah. Because I was a nervous wreck. My head was spinning everywhere. I was the driver and my head was on the swivel 
you know, so many different locations, just looking all around because I'm thinking the fit's about to hit the shan immediately as soon as we get outside this wire. Like I'm expecting things just to happen. You know, you're a kid, you're 19, you don't know what to expect. You've been told what to expect, but you don't really know. And then my, uh, my gunner popped off around on this 240 and I'll never forget. We, we all stopped and we kind of shook it off and got our jitters out. And, you know, it was one of those things that, yeah, it was kind of stupid, but we got to laugh about it. We got to kind yeah. of relax a little bit. So I mean, do you remember going condition one? I mean, that's something that in my head, it's still the very first time I went condition one, leaving the wire is probably very similar to how it was for you with the negligent discharge. I don't remember going condition one because I remember, you know, you're sitting there in the driver's seat and you had a little chassis that your rifle sat in and it was perked up right here. And probably because we did it so many times, I don't remember the first time, to be honest. Um, I do remember doing it on other occasions where just reaching over, you know, racking that thing and then close the ejection port cover and make sure it's on safe. And then you go back to driving. Yeah. yeah second deployment was a little bit different, but yeah. So you, um, you go outside the wire. Do you have this happen? Are you guys driving white light or are you guys under nods? We went blocked out for as long as I can remember. We, we hardly ever put the headlights on. That's yeah. uh, that's a skill set in itself. It is. I spent we spent probably two months at Camp Bullis learning how to drive blacked out. With oh, okay, yeah. okay, yeah. So was this a? You guys really didn't do patrols. You you guys did more mission oriented stuff, right? Like you guys just didn't randomly hop in the vehicles and do oh, a no. patrol. You, you had a specific. Our whole purpose of our first deployment was battle space shaping operations. We had to, we took a battle space that was designed for a grunt company and, or I guess the size of it was the size that a a grunt company would normally be attached with, but we got it for some reason. And that was Zidon. And our job was to, you know, develop battle space. No. Were IEDs as big of a threat then as they were, yes. say, in 6, 7? Yes. 05, they were just switching their tactics up, and they were a big concern. Yeah. How much did that play on your guys' mind? How much did it what? How much did, it, how much, uh, did you guys put any thought behind the IED threat, or were you guys still just in the more worried about getting shot at or RPG'd or mortared? Now that we're discussing it, I remember a bulk of a majority of our workup training was dealing with roadside IEDs. Okay. And we actually had a, a guy from a Marine who was blown up. He was at BMC. Our company commander found him and put him to work essentially. Cause he wanted to work with us for a little bit and helped us with training. And he told us what, to, you know, what it was like and what their TTPs were and how we're going to basically, uh, we took what their TTPs were with dealing with uh, IEDs and then we kind of modified our own. And then you get into country, okay. you kind of take that and you modify it a little bit more based on what the guys that are there that are working with. And yeah, um, we got, there was a couple attempts on us directly that had to deal with uh, IEDs. The other platoons got a little bit more than we did, I think. 
was it was your was this first deployment it was pretty close to after phantom fury well oh, about a year oh, yeah. Oh, five. yeah so did you guys um did you guys was it as kinetic as say some of the later deployments in in terms of engagements and or was it pretty i don't want to say mellow but no so every deployment that well, I've only been the two combat deployments, but there's a period of time where you get into country and, you know, they know us, the insurgents, they know us, they know when we're coming in and where we're leaving because things change. It's their home. They're in the, you know, we're, in, we're on their home turf. And when there's a new unit there, things change. They notice that. So their op tempo goes down, right? Until they can gauge us and figure stuff out. And then, so first couple of months there, not a whole lot of activity. Mid-deployment, things go up. And then towards the end of deployment, things went back down. So it was pretty kinetic in the fact that we were always doing stuff, um, knock and talks. You know, we had a couple of drive-bys where they would, you know, drive from the back. You know, they'd be on the back of a truck and they'd drive by and open up on our, you know, fob with, you know, small rounds or, yeah, small arms. And then they would drive off or they would do the uh, uh, random mortar shoots, you know, where they would, yeah. you know, s- stop somewhere in a wadi or something where they couldn't be seen and launch two or three mortars and then drive off. Usually they were never near, never close until uh, one time when they actually started to adjust fire. Yeah. So do you, do you remember your first full on engagement? I do. Not just a drive by. No, I do. Yeah. Uh, October 2005, we were almost done. We were in, uh, excuse me, because I get a little bit jittery when I start thinking about this all the time. No worries, man. Uh, No worries. We were in Ferris. It was a perfect 1,000 meter by 1,000 meter square town. Um, Took it over, no resistance. We set up, helped them set up the polling stations so they could vote for their new government. Um, we left Ferris and went about a kilometer outside of that city into a town called Amariah. And we left third platoon in Ferris at the FOB. Second platoon was also in Ferris at the FOB. And we were in Amariah at a different FOB. And typical rotation was you had a team that would be out patrolling, a team on rooftop security, a team that was bedding down, a team that would also be patrolling. So you had two teams that were out. So that was a constant rotation going on. And I remember we had just come off patrol. So our job was immediate. Since we're up, we automatically go straight to the rooftop to do rooftop security. And then once you did that, then you got to bed down for, you know, four or five, six hours until your rotation came up to actually go out there and start patrolling again. Um, We just come off the rooftop. We're about to head uh, head down and go to sleep. And uh, I remember the 50 cal up top going off. And that was the uh, 50 cal nest. You know, boom, 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 boom. And we hear the uh, the mortars. You know, mortars start coming in. And uh, they start adjusting fire. They, it's not two or three mortars like it usually is because they're getting louder. And they're getting louder. And they're getting louder. And they're starting to walk them in. They're bracketing us, essentially. Um, 
we immediately all run up to the top of the uh, rooftop and, you know, we start our field of view. I can see, imagine looking at an L shape of buildings, you know, it's open ground from our fob to this little village, but there's, you know, alleyway after alleyway after alleyway, and then alleyway after alleyway after alleyway. So it's an L shape area that we're looking at and that's where they're at. You know, they're running in between the alleyways, in between buildings. I remember seeing uh, military aged males uh, with the little caps on their head and beard in like a, what looked like a blue mechanics jumpsuit with an AK-47 running in between buildings. Um, and that's, that's the first guy I aimed at and, you know, tried to kill. I don't know if he did die because he kept running. Um, but yeah, you'd see a bunch of that kind of stuff. You'd see the muzzle flashes from buildings going off. And essentially what they were trying to do was do an L-shaped ambush on us. And they had a perfect spot for it. Then we get the call. Hey, team one and team two are out in the town right now. They're surrounded. You need to go pick them up. So my team, which was team four, we get down off the top of the roof and we have other people up there, other Marines. We go down, we hop in the vehicles and two vehicles. So we take off we head to where their location is. We drive down an alleyway, open up the hatch in the back because we had those, um, the high backs. Okay. And then, uh, let those guys in pick them up, took off out of the alleyway, went the long way around back to the fob. We went into the fob and opened the wire up, walked in or uh, drove the vehicles in, closed the wire up and everything got quiet. Everything stopped. And it was weird. It was like probably 25, 30 minutes of stuff going on. And the minute we drove into the fob, everything just stopped. It was eerily quiet. Weird. Yeah. So after all that was said and done, um, come to find out it was a coordinated attack because in the town of Ferris, where you had second and third, uh, they had also been attacked at some of their checkpoints. So it was going on, it was going on at the same time. And yeah, so it was a pretty, pretty coordinated, pretty well coordinated ambush or attack on us. How far away were the two cities or towns? How far away were the two towns? I want to say maybe a kilometer or two. Oh, okay. So relatively close. Yeah. We had, we had the ability to mutually support each other if we had to. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So I, I can relate on the firefight the first time. Um, yeah. I know for us, there was a lot of gallows humor afterwards. Yeah. Um, to just try to decompress. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll assume that you guys had your way of decompressing. We did. It took me about four hours to decompress. I'll, I'll never forget that. Cause after that I crashed. And yeah. then, so your, your, how do I say this? Your gunfight cherry has been popped for real. Yeah. yeah. For real this time. Yeah. That was the big one. Sustainment looking for targets actually and getting to engage, you know, real people running to from building to building. And uh, I remember Corporal Sandoval 
he was like, Everett, you need to get on top of the, because, you know, on the Iraqi rooftops, you had a rooftop and then you had another little section of roof that was a little bit higher. That's where the door was that you came out onto the roof. We had set up our machine gun nest up there. I'll never forget Corporal Sandoval telling me I need to get up there and coordinate fire. So the only ladder to get to that spot is facing the area the guys are shooting at us from. So I remember getting over there and just hearing the snaps, you know, like, like those little firecracker pots that people, when you throw them down and they snap, that's what it sounds like when a round's coming close or it hits something next to you. But I remember hearing the snaps and then the pings and then the whizzes climbing up this set of ladders to go to the top, jumping over the sandbags to get to the radio, getting on the radio and getting, we have three buildings within our little fob area, you know, getting the far right building to concentrate their fire on the right side and getting the middle building to concentrate fire on the apex of this L and then getting our building uh, to concentrate fire on the left side, you know, it's just, so we're not all, you know, hitting one point and just destroying one little area. We have a good overlapping field of fire. I'll never forget that. Um, that was that, one hair raising moment of that firefight. Why I actually, it was so difficult to pull myself off the wall to make myself go up there and do that. It took Corporal Sandoval jumping down my throat and getting in my ass to actually get me to do it. I did it. And then, uh, that's when they told us that team one and team two were out there. We had to go pick them up. So you, um, were you still a driver at that point in time? I was, yeah. I was the one that actually had to drive, Coming out of the fob, bad guys are on the left. Can't do anything about it. Marines are over on my right. And the Marines are firing over our heads at the insurgents as we're driving underneath that volume of fire. To, oh, go, wow. to go almost straight to the uh, the apex of that L is where we were going to go pick these guys up that were surrounded yeah. in a building. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to... Welcome to your baptism by yeah, fire. That was, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, was so you, like you were, like you were saying earlier that for a Marine to deploy to a combat zone, that's kind of like getting to the, the game. Yeah. Uh, your, your first big engagement, that must've been like winning the game. Yeah. I, I don't know. It was, it was towards, it was in the last third of our deployment. So, so much had happened up to that point that, you know, small engagements, small, uh, there was, there was only one other firefight that actually happened prior to that. And it lasted maybe 10 seconds. And I don't even remember a whole lot other than there was a, uh, like a, in the canals, you had all the reeds that came up. They were firing at us from those reeds. That was the first time it actually, I actually got to use my rifle but I didn't know what I was aiming at. I just knew that everyone's right. firing this direction. So do the same thing and overwhelming fire superiority, you know, maybe that'll win off the day. No, nobody got hurt. Nobody got injured. Um, so, but yeah, that was the first real sustained firefight that we got into and the last. I was going to ask, so was that, um, was there anything else that happened that stood out uh, after that or was it pretty quiet till you guys went home? <clears throat> From there on, it was pretty quiet. I remember patrolling. Um, you know what? 
that documentary crew from the military channel, they came and joined us afterward and they followed us around. Um, when they did that documentary on the 2005 following around the, uh, the companies, but they came and walked around with us for a little bit. And that's when we discovered they had dug a few new graves, um, about a week after that firefight. Oh, so, wow. so I guess we got somebody. So you guys finish there at some point in time, you return back to camp Fallujah. Are you yeah. ready to go home at that point in time? At that from there, from Amariah, we left and we stopped off at Camp Smitty. Camp Smitty is where I think a track battalion was staying. That is actually where we did our left seat ride with the oncoming. Oh, okay. Lawyers. Yeah. And that's when um, Master Sergeant Jakes came back into view. He had been my, you know, you got Ken Sharp and Gonzo and Atkins will you know, back then it was Gunny Jakes. Gunny Jakes was the head of those guys. And he's the one that ensured that the Martlings got trained. And this is the first time I get to see him since he trained me. And now he's, you know, he's, uh, uh, swapping out with us, you know? So it was, uh, it's pretty cool getting to see his face again, but we did our little, um, left see ride with those guys there. I didn't get to do it because you know i'm a young guy i was an e3 at the time but that's when gonzo went out and that's when he got hit with the the grenades and okay was that uh was it that day or was it uh was it what was it 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 was that deployment but not that day it was that was it was about probably three weeks after that engagement yeah oh wow okay i didn't realize that he got all that happened that quick yeah i mean we got engaged um like man like the last couple of weeks we were in country yeah and that's when Damn. he got that little bit of shrapnel from that whole tiny russian grenade that they used to carry around so was he there with you then uh he was in a different platoon okay but he was on your deployment correct okay that's i never really talked to him about his deployment um i should if he would actually open up you should because <laughs> our second deployment i was in his team and it's oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So you guys come back to the States. Um, how was your demo process? Uh, Cherry Point. We stopped there. I don't remember if we went to Lejeune or we went back to California. I don't think we went back to California. I remember isolation was about a week or two and then we did our demo psychological briefs, you know, uh, periodic health or post deployment health assessments, uh, at the transition process from going from all that. All I remember was the bus ride showing back up at the unit and the welcome home, seeing my, uh, my dad, and my girlfriend standing next to him at the time. Yeah. And so you are now after this long journey, finally a reservist. Yeah. Came back. Um, 
I didn't even know how to be a reservist until that happened. I, was, I, I chose to stay on to complete the one year of orders, I think is what it was. And then I stayed on a little bit longer to do Toys for Tots, um, okay. just picking up because I think it was November, December timeframe. Um, and then I finally, yeah, finally dropped off orders and went back home to live with dad until it was time to go again at the end of 2006. So you, uh, damn, so you literally were on orders for what, almost three years? Oh, not longer? To the very end of 05. Okay. Yeah. And that was the, the middle of 03, so two and a half years. Yeah. Damn. Almost, almost, well, no, halfway past a regular active duty contract. So yeah. what was life like in between drills at that point in time? I remember getting on my father's nerves a lot. You know, I'm still a kid and I had no idea what the hell I was going to do with myself. I got a security job at a, at a, corp, at a place called Advanced Micro Devices. And I was working security because my father knew the head of security for them. So then I got a job there. And that's, that was my first civilian job was, uh, you know, being a security officer and doing the rounds and just no direction whatsoever. I didn't know I was, I was going to go to college, whatnot. So I lived off of the, um, the money I made from that deployment. You know, I think I came back with around 30 something thousand as a, oh, wow. as a Lance. That was, I, that was I had no idea. Good I, money. Yeah. Yeah. I, and that was ridiculous. $33,000. I remember seeing that in my bank account and just my eyes going big. And of course I'm thinking I win the lottery. And I bought a car, you know, um, it was a used car. So I wasn't, I wasn't dumb and got high interest rates, but it was a used vehicle. Uh, got my own vehicle and, uh, yeah, just did the drills. And then I met my ex-wife, um, over the summer of 2006, we went to high school together. So I knew her from back then. And then started college. They kind of, her family kind of helped me get on the path of, you know, what are you can do with your future kind of thing. <clears throat> and, uh, so then I started college a month into my first semester at college up in Waco. Uh, I get the call from Gonzo and Gonzo's like, Hey, we're going to head out the door next year. And, you know, we want to know if you, cause at that point it was a choice. You done your one, your one pump as a reservist, you had to do it. Anything after that was, it was voluntary. I don't know how that worked, but yeah, yeah, I know that there there was a dwell period. So I think I think both Navy and Marine Corps was like, I want to say a five year dwell. So you do your first deployment, and then you, they can't make you do another deployment for I think five years, but you could volunteer. Yeah, and wow. I mean most of the guys at the at the unit wow. I think would raise their hand in a heartbeat for any deployment. So it wasn't hurting the Marine Corps at all by having yeah. that. No, and then uh. So I had a choice. I just started college or I could head out the door again. And then I got a call from uh, Townsend, who was, I think he was Gunny Townsend at that point. Maybe he was still staff sergeant. 
And he was like, Hey, we could really use your seniority. You know, you've been there, you've done that. we got some new guys coming on. And so I was like, all right. And then I was still on the fence about it. Gonzo called me and he was like, Hey, it's not like last time. This is going to be a forced deployment. I'm like a forced deployment. He's like, yeah, it's a forced mission. I'm like, explain that a little bit further. And he's like, it's all direct action. I was like, awesome. I'm there. So, so your, your first deployment, you were basically overtrained infantry, right? Yeah, basically. That's exactly what it was doing patrolling operations. We did a few RNS stuff. In fact, that's when uh, Staff Sergeant Dare had uh, an issue in, in the hide. And I will never forget, it was uh, that was my 20th birthday. And yeah, we actually went to go support his sniper hide that they had out there. So we did a few traditional type of constant stuff in 05, but it was, yeah, more or less we were overqualified infantrymen. At that point. Yeah, maybe maybe we should tell people what what is the mission of recon supposed to be? Traditional reconnaissance, you are the eyes and heels of the battle space. Um, you get your job is to provide the the uh, commander, the battle space commander, with as much intel on the given objective as you can, right? Because if you have a infantry company that is going to come in and they want to. Uh, you know, uh, go through a village to look for insurgents. We're going to be there to get eyes and ears on that village to give them as much detail before they get there. So essentially, as a reconnaissance Marine, you work for the infantry battalions. You are an asset to the infantry battalions. You know, and then even then you might provide some overwatch support from there, maybe a designated marksman support. Uh, you rarely as a traditional reconnaissance Marine, do any kind of door kicking, direct action. Uh, it's all RNS, reconnaissance surveillance. And then you have the force side of that, which is more yeah. of, yeah. I, I, I hesitate yeah. to, to, to compare them to like SEALs, but I guess that would be the, the closest comparison. <laughs> well, SEALs, in, they in, in their mission. Yeah, I mean, they got that anti-terrorism thing going and so that requires them to have uh, direct action capabilities and things like that yeah. uh, on the force side it's more like going after you know tar- uh, insurgent targets you know um, someone that's of persons of interests uh, maybe you got a guy who's supplying a, an insurgent cell with money to pay for you know insurgent fighters you know from syria or wherever and we have good intel on where that guy's residing the force guys are going there and go snatch and grab yeah okay so you we were saying that uh gonzo was telling you that this was going to be a whole different mission set that this was going to be basically what all that training that you had been doing mm-hmm. is set you up for so was that when you went yep <laughs> I'll take it yeah. or this time I didn't have to be a driver. You know, I could actually be a, a, uh, functional team member. And, you know, it was, it was second deployment was great. I can tell you that. Um, because it, I actually got to feel top tier, you know, like we were a, a valuable, you know, but the, what everybody thinks of when they think of special operations, that's what it felt like on our second deployment, you know, 
Um, we were an asset that the commander could point and shoot and we go do this thing and then come back. You know, and then we work out in the gym for a week and then until we get another target package or something needs to get eyes on or looked at or whatever. And then go out and do it again and come back. So it was no longer the sustained you're living out in a fob for a week or two and then coming back for a refit, you know, at the, uh, at the Camp Fallujah and then going back out again, you're not occupying a battle space. This is, you are a direct action asset. It was great. Were you, were you guys, uh, mobility wise, were you mixed mobile or were you still vehicle based? We got there and the guys before us were all Blackhawks. That was Sharp's deployment. The 2000s. That's when everything. I guess. I guess maybe that was your deployment. Yeah, I was there in oh, October '06 to. I got medevaced out in March, but my guys came home in April. Same yeah. time. Same time frame. Bags and Llewellyn went. Yes. So we were there. We I guess we relieved you guys. Right. Okay. Um, actually, I was helping uh, Steph and Dare train you guys up for your pre-deployment. Well, I wasn't with I wasn't with Recon during my deployment. I was with uh, oh, Team Gator. Okay. Gotcha. Or, or as I call them, IED bait. But um, yeah, I, I'll, yeah, I'll have to remind you of what what our mission was. It was a shit show. But um, you guys ended up uh, getting there. Like you said, you relieved bags and dare and all them. Mm-hmm. I know at that point in time when I got hit the awakening was starting to happen where there was more cooperation from the locals. Did you guys experience that at all? Probably not because everything, every mission we had was so short. It was, you know, there was a, with the exception of the Marathon, which lasted a little over a month of just developing Intel contacts. Um, Everything was a short, you know, raid. They're all limited scale raids. This is an IED factory. This is a known insurgent house. This is a place we need to go and, you know, capture or kill a bad guy. And, you know, it was just nonstop arrow scouting missions and limited scale raids. Yeah. With one, one PR mission was mixed into all that. PR? Personnel recovery. Two oh, Marines okay. went down the Euphrates River. And then uh, they needed a dive-capable unit to go out there and look for these guys. So we had command and control of the ground. SEALs came out. I want to say it was – actually, I don't know which SEAL team it was, but a a small group of SEALs came out. PJs came out. Hard hat divers came out. Riverine, River on One, who we were working very closely with for the island hopping campaign, was there. Um, They were our boat assets. And then we had a Cobra UE gunship mix all working together to find two Marines that went missing in the Euphrates river. Oh, wow. Yeah. So did you guys, did you dive the, the mission? I did not. I was out recording where I was security supporters, but I was Gonzo. Okay. Got dive it. And uh, oh, okay. yeah. And Smith, a couple other guys that were more senior to me, uh, with a little bit more dive experience got to go down there and actually, scuba dive the Euphrates and look for these guys. Damn. Do you know, did they ever uh, recover? We did. We recovered okay. uh, both of them. Um, Good. Navy SEALs found one 
they went down and picked him up because this lasted until probably evening the following day of just looking for oh, these wow. guys. Yeah, because we we got there. We were on a trap mission. Um, we were trap mission capable. So I was monitoring the, all that. It's a long story, but um, we got there in the middle of the night. I mean, within a couple hours of hearing about this and did as much as we could in the middle of the night to find these guys who couldn't find anything. Um, I mean, we even did a, like people say you don't use math as an adult. You do like point of entry into a river that's moving in a certain knot, you know, a certain speed. And then you formulate the uh, mathematics how of how far they for them to drag down river, provided that there are no obstacles. There's a lot that goes into it. So we did that and to try to calculate where these guys would be and couldn't find them. So then next day morning rolls around, we bring out the Zodes, Zodiacs, the rubber craft, and we start zooming around the uh, river looking for these guys. And it was super clear. So you could see straight to the bottom, 15 feet maybe. And uh, yeah, then, so SEALs were out there working with us. They found one guy. He had gotten all his gear off and he was like this. Ricker Mortis was stuck. He was, you know, in the fetal position, just like this. And he was stuck like that. They brought him up from the surf from the bottom with just, just like that, you know, um, stuck him in a black body bag. And then, uh, <clears throat> hard hat divers went out there, but debris kept getting caught on the lines. So they had to bring them back. And then we, I think, yeah, we no hard hat divers. We, we located that guy, hard hat divers went back out, retrieved him and then brought him back to the, the, uh, the bank. And then, uh, all I remember about that guy was seeing his wedding ring still on his finger. So, damn. Yeah. Were these remember, aviators? Uh, say again. Were these uh, aviators or were they just. Uh... They were infantry Marines. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh. They had been given a task with uh, cachet sweeping and they were getting in a, a local boat to head into the middle of the Euphrates because Euphrates is pretty wide, right? And so they got islands in the middle of the Euphrates. Their job was to go sweep the islands in the middle of the Euphrates. And uh, in the process of going from there to the island, the boat sank. And that's when they went missing. Oh, wow. I, I know water was a big issue for a lot of the, a lot of the units out there. Mm -hmm. um, Roll over Yeah. Just uh, with all the gear that we carried, you're not swimming out of there easily. Nope. I, I think, yeah. I, I think that's why they changed the flak jacket that, you know, uh, 2005, 2006 that we were issued yeah. to that new one that had yeah, to pull away. So it come off. Tab off the side and the whole thing just fell away from yeah. that. Yeah. Probably saved quite a few lives, man. I didn't know you guys did a mission like that. Yeah. That was 07, man. That was, they were still wearing interceptor vests. That's why. Oh, wow. They didn't have the easy pull away tabs that we did, you know, one guy, the second guy, he had just barely gotten his fly jacket off. It was hanging on one arm, you know? And, uh, yeah. So what, so you said that you guys worked with the, uh, the river on, so the, um, the lack of better word PT boat type unit, what was, uh, what was that like doing the water ops with them? Great. They were a great bunch of guys. You know, um, I think a lot of them had buds training. I don't know how far they went with it. 
And, you know, for a guy to say, yeah, I went to Bud's and then got washed out to then join the Riverines was kind of a, kind of a slap in the face, but yeah. that's, that's the feeling I got from one or two of these guys that they had been to Bud's training, but just didn't make it through the process for whatever reason. But I know that when they worked with us in 07, they were, they were extremely professional. Um, a lot of fun to work with. They had a lot of freedom of movement that we didn't. And, uh, yeah, overall, it was just, it was a great working relationship with those guys. Nice. Yeah. So was there a friend, was, was there a friendly rivalry between you and the, uh, the, the team guys? Uh, well, or did you guys do much? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Nope. No, there was no thought about it because during the, uh, we called it the fallen angels mission. Um, everybody came together to look for these guys. There was no rivalry. There's no bitterness. There was nothing that, you know, we had command and control of the ground. They did their own thing, but, uh, it was really well put together. Um, was that the only time that you guys worked with them? Yes. We know. Oh, okay. Scratch that. No, Gonzo and I, um, one of our first missions, second deployment was to be outer cordon for seals on a specific mission. We were, um, in a helicopter. I, I don't even remember the specifics of it, but we got into a CH or not a CH 53 going to provide overheads or support. And I think they finished before we even got there or something. <laughs> and we didn't actually get to support them. I, I don't remember a whole lot about it to be yeah, honest. I don't know. I get it. Yeah. But it was like the first or second mission of the second deployment. We got that really cool opportunity to help these guys out. Um, yeah. Around that time, Marsoc was being stood up, right? Yeah. Debt one, I believe was training up the, uh, Marsoc guys. Did you ever give a thought to, I know a couple of the guys from the unit, um, went to try selection. Um, I don't know. Maybe this is a good time to take a break. Cause I have to take a leak. Yeah. Yeah. We can come right back. All right. Sound good. Uh, yeah. I'm going to pause it. All right, so Marsoc. as I was saying, Marsoc, did you um, did you ever give it a thought? I never got to. I never really put any thought into it, to be honest. Um, it was brand new, I think, right after '07. Um, I remember there was a lot of bad blood between Marsoc and Recon for a while. Um, but I got hit up with shortly after the 07 deployment, I got tasked with, um, going to Kent Pendleton to be an instructor at BRTC. So is that, oh, I forgot about that. So you took it, right? Yeah. Me and two other reservists actually went on orders to go and be instructors. And I guess represent the, the fourth, you know, part of the division. Over there. How, how many, how long were those orders? They were supposed to be three years, but that was oh, were they? 2010, 2009, 2010. And shortly after 2010 is when we had, had our, uh, the, the government shutdown. Oh, okay. The debt ceiling crisis deficit crap yeah. during Obama. And 
all reservists on orders got tanked. I was right in the middle of putting in my active duty package with another Marine um, to go after duty and all that just got stopped. Damn. So, but yeah. I forgot so I got, about that. How bad it, yeah. I forgot how bad the shutdown affected you guys. Yeah. So when you got back from your second deployment, was transitioning back to civilian world a little bit easier than the first? Nope, not for me. Well, okay. Yes and no. Yes, in that I knew what to expect. No, because I was fresh, freshly married. And I was a newlywed. I got married right before my second deployment. So that was first real year of marriage was following my second deployment probably a really bad recipe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can see that. So how long did that, uh, did that awkwardness last? A year. Yeah. It was, um, because we did a lot of vehicle stuff and there was still a threat of IEDs. Um, she got to experience firsthand what it was like driving on the highway, seeing a pile of garbage in the middle of I-35 and getting that kind of uneasy yeah, kind of wigging out feeling in the back of your neck. And uh, yeah, so she got to experience some of that stuff firsthand, but it, it wasn't nearly as bad as the first deployment. What about, uh, did you go back to working as a security guard or did you go back to school? I forgot whether you went back to school or not. I, I did go back to school, but that wasn't until much later. Um, I started working security. Oh, uh, Morell, you remember Ben Morell? Yeah. Yeah. So he got me a job working security at Boeing in San Antonio. So that's where I started okay. working, uh, security there and worked there for, uh, from early 08 to mid 09. Yeah. Okay. Then, then that's when the orders came up, I guess. Yeah. So what, how am I trying to put this? How was it going from super high level tactical dominant recon Marine on a force mission to security guard? Yeah, you know, I, I've always been pretty quiet. Um, it's, I don't know. I, I keep a lot of that stuff to myself. Um, I did catch myself every now and then, you know, like expressing how low, but I, you know, I was glad for the low temple, low tempo. It was, it was a normal, a normalcy. It was, I had bills to pay and I was living a life. I was, you know, experienced, you know, I was the end of my twenties and uh, well, mid I guess mid to uh, about 26, 27 days when it was. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was not bad. I quickly rose up. I went from being a regular security guard to being the site supervisor at Boeing at, for the security side on the contract side. And uh, so I quickly rose up through the process, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a rewarding experience learning, you know, how to do that kind of job. 
Um, I was a commissioned security guard, so it was a little bit more responsibility. Um, being in charge of three shifts as a young man in you know his mid twenties, being in charge of you know all these older guys and on three different security shifts was pretty stressful, but it was rewarding and it was I was learning a lot at the same time. The guys I was working for, my client, um, guy by the name of Bob Seeper, was a former Green Beret. You know, and one guy that they were all prior military, you know, so they all knew oh, okay. they understood the job. They understood the transitions and things like that. So you know, it was a very rewarding job. I remember that. So just like curiosity, I know during that time frame after you guys got back from your second deployment, there were quite a few uh, guys who were doing contracting, contracting back mm-hmm. overseas. Did you ever give that a thought? Nope. Give it a thought thought about it, but I had a brand new family. You know, my daughter was, she was born in 2009, you know, a year after my second deployment. So that was, uh, had a lot of pressure to stay there and support the family. So like that. And so in 2009, when you got orders to go to Pendleton, Mm -hmm. did you, did they let you take your family or were you guys separated again? It was a company orders. So they did allow me to bring my family. Um, yeah. So I moved in with my sister in San Diego for a month until I could find a place out there. Um, so I, I moved the family in with her. I was staying up in Camp Pendleton, you know, until I could find a, a place out there in San Clemente. So I found a job or I found a uh, house in San Clemente beautiful little Ole Hansen historical home, you know, and BAH was covering it all. It was great. <clears throat> and that was, man, that was paradise vacation for a solid year and a half. It was a did, uh, best job I ever had. So did you get into, did you feel a calling to educating and instructing? It was about that time I started learning what it meant to be an instructor. And I found out I was really good at it and I loved it. And I loved imparting that knowledge on the young Marines and a really old, I hate to say it's really old, but an older Marine, uh, one of my mentors um, told me once that the best thing, the best gift you can give to another Marine is knowledge, you know, to impart your experiences and knowledge was the most valuable, you know, gift you can give to another Marine. So, you know, I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly took that and, you know, tried to push it as much as I could experience wise, all that stuff. So after, so you do the instructor thing that orders get canceled, which probably was pretty devastating. Then you guys move back here. Yeah, Texas. end of 2010, yeah, that's when we, I'll say they're going to have to stay in California, part of the uh, uh, mobile training team, mobile, uh, MTB is what it was, uh, mobile training battalion, where they were, they were responsible for um, combat hunter. Remember that course? I don't know if you guys are watching uh, it. Vaguely, vaguely, yeah, vaguely I remember people talking about it. That was their baby. But the way that they can get us over there at BRC teaching was to put us under their billets and then oh, okay. we were so i was gonna have to go back to them and work at a course i had never worked at before 
I didn't want to be there anymore. You know, I was had a bad taste in my mouth from the, the active duty package falling through and not going as you know where it went where I wanted it to go. And you know, I, I built a lot of rapport with the active duty guys. Um, you know, just to name a few: uh, uh, Master Gunnery Sergeant Powell. You know, uh, just Gunny Hartrick. You know, John Crozier, all these guys that were part of first, I got to build up a ton of, uh, you know, credit with these guys. You know, I got to give, give four, three kind of really good name, just, you know, being a workhorse over there. And then all that just got yanked out from underneath me, you know, it's like, what the hell am I going to do? So in comes uh, major Murata and I call him and I said, Hey, what do you got going on? And you know, do you have a job for me? I can, so I can come back home, come back to Texas. And he said, yeah. He's like, I have a great job for you. We're doing a thing with Northcom, uh, doing security cooperation. So that's when I started working with uh, Northcom doing security cooperation down in Mexico. And that's when actually, it's funny, you, uh, you're a corpsman, or I don't know if you were there for the, did you go down to the first one? I wasn't there for the first one. I was second one, okay. second and third. Okay. Never mind. Uh, a friend of mine I got from um, LAR became one of the corpsmen for the first mission with uh, Chris Patton. Uh, Max Moore. I don't think you met him. I think you were in California at that time. Because it, it was 2000. No, maybe it was 2010. 2011 officially is when I was with them. To end of 2010, yeah. I think uh, November, December is when I joined the debt. And then we actually were did the PTP and then we went down to Mexico, I think shortly thereafter. So that, yeah, that mission, um, were you guys mobilized? Were you guys mobilizing for that one or were you on? See, I'm trying to think. It was really difficult. Um, because the way the line of accounting was going, they put us on like, I don't know all the admin stuff behind it, but like short-term orders, they're like yeah, the okay ADT orders, I think <clears throat> something active duty training, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I think you may have real pain in the butt for everybody because guys weren't getting paid. Yeah, it was they were shortchanging everybody, and the the support wasn't there. Yeah, and then it ended up getting didn't it get relieved by an active duty battalion? No idea. I was gone by okay. two thousand. 13. Okay. So you were saying um, this mission, I know it very well because I did a lot of the the med planning for it um, in its original form and a lot of the medical intelligence for them in its original form was all about uh, training a foreign uh, national force in tactics to use against, I would call it an insurgency. what what was your experience like down there? Very rewarding. I grew up um, <sighs> it was I grew up in Phoenix in Texas, where you get a lot of prejudice toward different cultures, right um, being a backwoods country boy from you know Austin, Texas there's a lot of prejudice toward, you know, different cultures and that going to Mexico and and working with those guys was eye opening, changed my perspective on a lot of stuff. Um, I was never a racist by, you know, 
by choice or anything, but they completely changed my perspective about their culture. You know, um, very family oriented, very fun, you know, will take the shirt off their back and give it to you kind of group of people. Um, we're just as invested in the training, you know, as we are, um, they want the training and, you know, they're fighting on their home turf. You know, they, they are fighting on their own ground. So it's a bit different for them. They're not going someplace else, you know, just to come back home to a safe and sound place. No, it's, it's in their backyard, you know, and therefore it's also in our backyard. And, you know, as much as we could do for them, um, you know, it was, it was definitely rewarding. That was probably the most rewarding job in the military I've ever had because you got to see results six months later. Oh, really? Yeah. So were you, when you guys were down there, were you, I'm trying to envision this, some, like some of the uh, guys that I know who have worked with like ANA or Iraqi army. Yeah. Were you uh, embedded per se, or were you more just down there to teach and they'd go do, they would go to execute what you guys taught them? I don't in know what you can say. <laughs> I, I don't know how much I can actually talk about that. Yeah, don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, but you were, but you saw yeah. maybe not immediately, but over time, good results from that cooperation. Absolutely. 100%. Do you, again, say what you can, but do you ever talk to or have contact with these guys, catch up, see how things are going? No. Were there relationships made? Yes. For lack of a better way. Absolutely. Great relationships. Every time we'd come back and then go back down there, we were welcomed with open arms and, you know, they were family. And nice. I know some guys kept some contacts offline, you know, just, you know, Hey, how you doing? Kind of stuff. You know, how are things going? I know we, um, with one of the guys we were working with that got turned into an instructor for their own people, uh, he actually was killed a couple of years ago uh, by the cartels. So just, it's just that kind of stuff kind of boom, right in your face. You know, it's in our backyard. Yeah. And you feel really bad about that. So let's go to something maybe a little bit more positive. You, you have, it's now 2013. Do you leave the Marine Corps at this point in time? 2015 is when I finally left. I was back to being in reserve, full on reserve, staff sergeant. Um, they stuck me because we came off of those orders. I left that mission and they didn't have a spot for me, you know, in the teams anywhere. And so they kind of stuck me off to the side and I was a training platoon sergeant, which I had done before, you know, at BRTC and stuff like that. Um, but being stuck in a place like that in a, a unit that, you know, could very well get deployed is where recon Marines go to die pretty much. Yeah. Um, I knew where the, the writing on the wall was going. They didn't have a spot for me. They weren't going to have a spot for me. Op tempo was way down. We weren't deploying anymore. Um, my marriage was failing. Uh, I had a daughter who didn't really know me very well because she was my second born and I was always going back and forth with the security cooperation mission. And, uh, 
it was just time to kind of let things go, start a new chapter of my life. So 2015, April 27th was my last day in the Marine Corps. And after that, what did you do? Um, so did you go the back to school? Side, I was, on the civilian side, I was actually teaching again. So I, I'm doing what I do right now, actually. I work for a course called Evasion and Conduct After Capture, which is level B, SEER, essentially. So is and this I, a private? Is this, 2014. is this for uh, private individuals or is this for um, things more government related? This is the, 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 the course. I mean, oh, the course is for the military. Yeah, I'm oh, okay, a okay. civilian contractor teaching the military. Okay. So, what is what is that like being a civilian contractor teaching for the military? Um, it's great because it, you still get to work with the military. Um, but I'm working with a completely different branch of service. I'm working with the Air Force, so it's. <laughs> okay, so you're doing like what what Sharp used to do or does? Yes, yes, he's okay. the one that got me the job there, 2014. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I I I found that weird that both the Air Force has um, they have an MOS that's a SEER instructor MOS. Yes, they're the only and then one they have, thing. which is just bizarre to me that you want to go teach SEER school. I would assume that that would just be a certain type of masochist that would be involved in that. <laughs> so you're a specialist maybe, but uh, it's, it's not that bad at our place. Um, again, teaching. I keep finding myself yeah. in these positions where I'm teaching and, you know, having that background really kind of led to the next one that led to the next one. And when Sharp called me in 2014, he couldn't have come at a better time because my, uh, I had just lost a house. My house had burned down. And uh, oh shit, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, overwhelming amount of support from the community. I mean, guys were pitching in left and right. So I need to find a job because I had to quit school, quit school to find a job. Um, and then that's when Sharp called me. He was like, "Hey, I got a job for you. Come down and interview." Did that. Got picked up with these guys and uh, been doing that job since fourteen. So do you um, do you just teach, or do you get to help develop the? curriculum or anything like that um yeah and yeah i do the, a lot of teaching like a, lot you of to get the- a lot of academics a lot of role play um evasion training and now that i'm one of the uh team leads i'm one of the uh, i also help out with anytime there needs to be a change in something curriculum wise i can put my inputs in uh, ultimately it has to go up to fairchild which is our parent course and where the story of the air force does theirs. And then it has to get approved by them and then come back down to us. Oh, wow. Okay. So they, they keep a tight leash. I yeah, they do. So are you a GS employee then, or are you straight up contractor? Straight up contractor. Yeah. There was talk so, for a while of making us GS, but I don't think it ever went through. So now, now, um, You've been doing that for a few years. Yeah. It's 2000. We're going to jump just right into the shit show. Pardon yeah. my French. It is 2020. Starts out pretty nice, I thought. Um, yeah, it was. How, how was your pre-pandemic 2020 life going? Well, um, 
can I backtrack just a little bit? Yeah, yeah, please. Two years prior to that, I got remarried. Um, disability kicked in for the VA. And, you know, it's not going to solve everything, but it definitely helps you with uh, navigate through life a little easier. Um, yeah. Got married and found the right woman. And there, beginning of 2020 was great. I mean, I just bought a house, uh, bought a, my own vehicle. You know, I was finally where I needed to be. You know, that was no, uh, it's funny because this morning I woke up 2021. I have no New Year's resolution only to stay on the path that I'm on right now. You know, um, that's right. You are the first <laughs> podcast of the new year. <laughs> yeah. 2020 was not much different. Actually, it was, um, I was on the right track, brand new house. You know, it was, we were living a really good life. So did you see a change at all from um, whether it was with your kids and not going to school or anything at work change for once the whole lockdown started? Lockdown started March, right? Yeah. Yeah. We got briefs. Um, prior to that saying that it could happen and to expect this and et cetera, et cetera. The, yeah. A little bit less time with my kids, I think was when it, cause we, you know, we got a constant revolving class going through our course, you know, new students every week. So when they locked down everything, there was a, uh, we kind of quarantined ourselves to make sure that if we picked up anything from any of our students that I wasn't going to, you know, give it to my kids or anything. So, yeah. So it was a, a way of life for my, myself and my wife. We didn't change all that much. You know, we already did curbside pickup, you know, with groceries, you know, to, uh, you know, make things easier on ourselves. Uh, I fish on my off time, you know, I, you know, spend time with my uh, in-laws doing hunting and fishing and, you know, just having a good time overall out in the country. And so life didn't change all that much with the exception of accessibility to amenities and the occasional movie night, you know. Um, it was very uh, frustrating because we were scared we weren't going to have a job, you know, if uh, this course became not a necessity anymore because, you know, the way contract life contract work is never guaranteed. You know, and that's the one thing about right. you have to understand about being a contract worker on any side of the fence is it's not job security that you're after. So yeah. they got to go. No, that's super true. Yeah. So there was the threat of, we may not have a job, you know, by the end of this because, you know, but luckily we did you know, and we still do. So with all of that, um, did you guys, you were mentioning that there was some concern about as students cycled in and out yeah. uh, exposure. Did you guys, did you personally have any people around you that were affected mm -hmm. by COVID? Um, several instructors um, contracted it, got over it pretty quick. Um, Grandma on my mom's side, my mother's mother actually just passed away uh, last week from it. Oh, I'm she sorry, had, I uh, she, it was kind of interesting though, because when she picked up COVID, she had to go to the hospital and get all the scans and everything. 
they found lung cancer. And one of her living will, you know, uh, requests was that if I ever end up getting something as bad as this, I don't want to go through all the treatments, you know, and she had uh, Alzheimer's. So, you know, dealing with that was a whole nother thing. She had Alzheimer's and dementia for the last year and a half. Um, so grandma wasn't really grandma to me, you know, for about a year and a half now. Um, but when they got, when she picked up COVID and they found that on there, it was kind of one of those things where it was like, you know, if she survived COVID quality of life would have just been super downhill for her. So, but she did not survive it. She got some really bad pneumonia. And up, uh, oh, wow. I'm sorry to hear that. Way, uh, last Friday. Yeah. So, um, in terms of, this sounds a little weird to say it like this, but in terms of your work and your skill set that you have, mm-hmm. when the rioting and looting broke out, um, <laughs> how did you guys deal with that? Like, did, did that affect you guys at all? Yeah, I live in Seguin, so no. Oh, well, oh, I didn't realize you were that far out. I am. Yeah, it takes me about 45 minutes to drive to work every day, but I don't mind it because I like the drive. Um, didn't really affect us one bit. No, people here in Dude. small town Seguin are pretty chill. Yeah, next time I'm out there, I have to look. I have to hit you up. Yeah, uh, I get I get beef from a guy out in Washington County, and that's usually where we meet up at the uh, by where that Office Depot is in center of Seguin. Yeah, right next to Drive Supply. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm literally two minutes from there. Oh damn. I've probably driven by your house a few times. Probably. So that that being said, um, with everything that's gone on in the last year, I know there's a lot of uh, uneasiness and that this pandemic is going to continue. Are you, are you in a position to where you feel comfortable with the new year? And do, do you see a bright future for us as a people? Oh, uh, let's see how to put this. That might, yes, yeah, we got a bright future. I think so. Um, I'm always hopeful about our us as a people, as a nation, community. Um, you know, as I think eventually, by 2023, I think this will be a thing of the past. To be honest. Um, once the vaccines are out there, you know, I, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. We join the military, we get stuck with tons of stuff, you know. Way too many needles. Yeah, I, so I don't really have an argument against vaccines because I was pumped full of all kinds of stuff, you know. But uh, I think once that kind of gets in the circulation, and you know, uh, things calm down a bit, I think it will be fine. Um, my a friend of mine at work and I have a, saying that very common saying that we could fix 98% of the world's problems if we just didn't have so many people. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a very unpopular thought, but it's a very dark humor veteran kind of joke, you know? Yeah. I will tell you from the data that I see almost daily about this virus, this is not the virus that's going to do us that favor. No. (laughs) 
uh, sadly enough or happily enough, however you want to say that. Yeah, this is not this is not the Black Plague, sadly. No, it's not. So, man, it has been good talking to you. Me too. Uh, man, I do miss hanging out with you guys. And yeah, I can never bring myself to do it. I'll, I'll I need to reach out to some of those guys a little bit more and hang out with them. But uh, Sharp will be about- here next week, so. Oh, nice. And come back he to keeps work. going on. Yeah, he, he keeps going on to all sorts of different marine things. Yeah, he's... Sharp was born in the wrong century, wrong time. <laughs> you know? Why do you say that? Because he, he would have been perfect for Vietnam or World War II or freaking Roman Legion or whatever. You know, he's just... He's a a marine through and through, and you know, he's just he's a warrior, you know. And I, I love everything about the man. He's you know he's like a brother to me, and well, they all are. But he's definitely closer because him and I have. You know, he he brought me up in the Marine Corps, and you know I'll see him next week, and you know he's brought me along a couple of different things, and but he's just he's always any chance he can get he's going to go back and do something with the Marines or deploy or whatever. And so now I think he's actually finally done. Like, is he, I mean, I thought he was done while I was still over there when he, uh, took off for a bit. Now I think he's got two years left until retirement. Oh, is he at that high? Cause he's a, what master right now? He's a gunnery sergeant. Oh, okay. I thought I, for some reason I thought I, he, he picked up mass sergeant. He had some broken time. you know, that guy is the one guy that I know that can leave the Marine Corps and then magically come back and be mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm going to, re- I'm going to stay till I retire, then leave again yeah. and then magically come back. It's like, wait, how are you able to co- keep coming, re-enlisting? He's persistent. <laughs> because, he is so persistent. Yeah. But that, like the Navy, if you leave the reserves, good luck. They yeah. ain't going to let you back in. So <laughs> Good on him. Um, sets. Yeah, it's so. Have you ever thought about using um, going out on your own and training people? I mean, since you have this passion for teaching, I have. I have. Um, it's actually become more of uh, at the forefront of my brain. I'm going to pursue a degree in business, and I think I do want to start something on my own soon. Well, do you remember Chad Chalky? Yes. Yeah. He was there. um, He has his, uh, his, try and think of the right word for it, his um, tactical training uh, thing going on. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get him on in the next couple of weeks to talk about it. But I I could see you doing something like that. And I I think there'd be a great market for that seer type training for sure. But okay, so I this I get a little convoluted. I gotta come up with this spiel a little bit better. But so the show is called After the Battle Campfire, and I created it because I feel like, like you were saying with the uh, with Ken that wrong century, wrong, uh, wrong time, World War Two, or Vietnam, World War Two, the Spartans, all of that. A lot of the time, you know, pre-mobilized units, people would march into battle. They'd fight during the day. And at night they'd go hang out at the campfires and tell their stories and bullshit yeah. each other. 
but the channel's called The Modern Ronin. And I did that because I feel like there's a lot of us out there who, in the traditional sense of the word Ronin, being that you've lost your master, that there's a lot of us who service was our master and we want to continue to serve. So what does it mean to you to be a modern Ronin right now? Um, That's a pretty deep question. Um, I still continue to serve. I have found my way back into the service of the military. Not directly, but, you know, well, I guess you could say directly. I'm still serving the military on the contract side um, the best way that I can and just imparting as much knowledge as I can to these kids because our course, you know, it's a pre-deployment course. It's it's now we now have job security with this course. You know, uh, it's a requirement. So uh, I can't find myself. It's weird thinking of being being any place besides the military or around the military or law enforcement. You know, it's I've always had that strong sense of I have to be a part of the things that might change the world. You know, or are part of the world's you know, the, the things that are in the world that are changing, you know, big scale type stuff. You know, it's like when Iraq first kicked off, there's no way I was going to let that just pass me by. I had to be a part of it. Um, and this is no offense to anybody else that does a regular eight to five job, you know, doing anything else, but I can't, I, I doubt I'll ever find myself in any kind of other position where I'm not directly involved with some, you know, big scale like the military or yeah, I God forbid politics. I don't think I'd ever be in politics, but you know, you kind of know what I'm saying that that feeling of grandeur that has a deep sense of purpose. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 that's what most of us seem to be missing right now is a sense of purpose. Yeah. As a modern Ronin, each other, you know, that's, that's the service is what can we do for each other? We're not doing enough for each other as it is. And I think that's where I'd like to shift our focus as a humanity, as a community. You know, uh, my uh, sister's uh, uncle, it's a really weird way of saying it, but he's not related, um, always calls me the, uh, the warrior artist because I have the warrior side, but I'm also on the artist side as well. Yeah, uh, that's right. We didn't even talk about your artwork, which is some uh, pretty amazing stuff. Thank you. Um, so there's that campaign, that compassion side of me says, you know, that we need to serve, find a way to serve each other as best we can. And I mean, you're doing it, you know, you're talking to me, you're talking to these other guys, you know, can't wait for you to talk to Chalky and see what he's up to. Um, and I think as long as we keep doing stuff like this, we'll, we'll, we'll keep pushing forward. Yeah. I just, I just hope that this helps uh, anyone who wants to listen or even you, just by talking. Um, I'm going to try to get Gonzo on here. Like you said, Chalky. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I feel you with the, the duality piece about um, wanting to serve and then having that creative side, which is odd because we hide our creative side a lot of the time when we're in. Yeah. You know, we, we didn't talk yeah. about Gonzo and he was, a big part of my second deployment because he was my team leader. Um, I really hope you get him on here. I really do. I'm going to work on it. You, you, it you know, he's a, he's, he knows I do this. I mean, like I said, we're, we talk 
literally probably every day or every few days, at least text. Um, hell, I think his last trip downrange, I was talked to him four days a week because he's still doing his thing. Um, but I don't know if I can get him to sit down and actually open up. I, I'm going to try. That's going to be my one of my quote unquote resolutions for 2021. Well, you to- talk to him more than I do. So if you tell him, if you see him, tell him thanks for me because he helped shape me, mold me. We got the best missions in 2007. We got the best support. We got the best everything that our command could give us because of him, because he was so strict on us. You know, we were going to be the best team there was, and it required him to be very in our shit all the time and my almost to the point of micromanaging us, but we got the best missions and it was because of Gonzo and that experience will be with me forever. You know, great man. I will definitely forward that onto him and make him watch this one or listen to this one. <laughs> well, man, I don't want to keep you any longer. I do appreciate you coming on. Um, for having me. Do you post your art anywhere? It's on Instagram. It's Rick underscore Everett. Go check it out, everyone. Yeah. I hope people follow you. Your stuff, whenever you would post it on Facebook, is awesome. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's published now, too. So that's cool. Oh, is it? Yeah. Nice. At, uh, we did a cookbook, and all my art's in a cookbook. So. Nice. What's the cookbook called? Um, <laughs> uh, cooking for the Soul. It's for the New Braunfels Cemetery Committee. So, oh wow, yeah, was it for has a little weird connotations? What did what are they? Uh, is it like recipes for it's all the recipes from people who are passed away, you know? Um, oh, okay, okay, you know, ancient recipes from you know, some of the founding people here, all the way up to uh, stuff that people it's like um, food that you would put out at a funeral you know, kind of stuff. Okay. That's, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, It's kind of odd, but it's also, it has, it's a mixture of a little bit of history with some old recipes mixed with new recipes. And, you know, it was a kind of like a, all proceeds go to benefit the New Braunfels Cemetery Committee. Oh, nice. Well, congratulations with that. You are now a published artist. I know it's crazy. Yes. All right, my friend, I'm going to stop the recording. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.